on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, blaze aid on the ground in Tasmania after the recent floods. We've been able to get volunteers. We get out there as a team and then we can pull up the old fences if they've been knocked down, get the debris off it, restrain up or otherwise if infections they've got to cut out. We will then roll up any that is damaged that can't be used and help them revent that section. And wine grape growers in Tasmania finding the season tough. It's actually pretty challenging for almost all wine growers in the state at the moment. Friends of mine who've got vineyards on the east coast have hired helicopters because it's too wet to put tractors onto the vineyard to do really critical work that needs to be done at this time of year to protect next year's crop. Yeah, not such a sparkling time for wine grape growers. And a team from Blaze Aid in Tasmania to help repair fences damaged in the floods. Those stories coming up today. G'day, Tony, with you on this sunny Friday. Hope you're getting some rays of sunshine wherever you are in the state. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage to see what's ahead. Not looking the best again if you don't want rain. Also, Richard Bailey with details of the livestock markets. And a recycling plant will be built in the state's northwest to process polystyrene. That story coming up as well. You too can be part of the country hour via the text line. Say good day, 0438 922 That number, 0438 922 First up, the wool industry. And over the last few years, it's weathered the pandemic perhaps better than many other ag sectors. But the extremely wet conditions and the shortage of shearers are still proving challenging. Wool producers have gathered in Sydney today for the annual general meeting of the research and marketing body, Australian Wool Innovation. AWI Chair Jock Laurie addressed the meeting a short time ago and started by talking about the devastating conditions that wool producers have been dealing with. First of all, what I'd like to do is recognise the uh, damage that's been done in the last 12 months, damage that's been done by bushfires. And we know in Western Australia there were some pretty major fires that caused some um, severe damage uh, and cost uh, to to many of our levy payers uh, and it's taken them a while to recover out of that and as a company, we've done whatever we can to provide um, support and facilities to get them through that process. Uh, and just recently, right now, as it stands, the floods that are happening across the eastern seaboard are really having a de- devastating impact. And some of the, in fact, some of the footage that I've seen this morning around down through the Hay Plain and different areas, it is quite staggering. Uh, and the problems that's creating in, in uh, getting sheep shorn, um, looking after the welfare of sheep and managing all those things right across the eastern seaboard... I think it's very important that we as a company understand those issues and do whatever we, ca- uh, whatever we can to actually help people through that process. Uh, the wool market, <clears throat> as it stands at the moment, is um, we would all love it to be higher, quite frankly, but there are underlying reasons for probably why it's sitting where it is at the moment. We do a lot of investment in regard to trying to make sure that we can continue building demand for wool to create more competition in the marketplace, which is what it's all about, and then at, a, at an on-farm level to make sure that we're doing R&D, which is trying to remove... Uh, cost or support cost of production to minimise that as much as we possibly can so that we can actually have those combining factors of demand and, and uh, re- re- finding better ways, better chemicals to reduce cost of production on farm. And that combination will keep us competitive. The underlying thing here with the wool market at the moment is dealing with the economic circumstances internationally. And some of that's coming out of COVID. Um, in our biggest trading partner when it comes to wool China, there's still some strong restrictions which are, re- which are limiting the domestic activity when it comes to uh, purchasing a product there, and that's having, without any doubt, having an impact on the on the wool market. Uh, and we can only hope that the Chinese continue managing the problem and get their vaccination rates up, which we're talking about, 
and then we can really start to see those volumes uh, lift again. And if we can, we can see that flow through into the market. They're a tremendous partner of the Australian wool industry. We've been saying this on a regular basis. They uh, have been very, very strong through the COVID period. Uh, we've been selling a lot of raw wool, a lot of our raw wool going back into into China uh, and the Australian wool industry, you know, are very thankful for the amount of support that they provided to the industry. So we'd really like to see them work their way through this and come out the other end, come out very strongly. And there's certainly some predictions around the fact that, or hope around the fact that that'll be happening in the first or second quarter next year. Uh, global inflation as it sits at the moment, obvious problem. And, and sitting in that inflation, the thing that operates, you know, just about everything that's going on being energy, price, energy prices and interest rates and energy prices Quite frankly, in all of the processing sector, we've got a long supply chain. Everything we do, we've got a component of energy in that, and energy is extremely dear throughout the process. So that's making it very competitive. And I think on an international stage, I think it is really challenging to, to understand, you know, where the early stage and late stage processing is going to end up because a lot of it's going to do with have to do with the cost of production, and that'll be sitting around land values to a certain extent, sitting around power prices, labour costs, all of those things that can actually turn around and remain us, allow us to be competitive with the end product in the market. So there's there's real challenges there, and we know that, and we've just got to uh, keep working through that. There has been some work done about bringing some early stage domestic processing back into Australia, and there'll be a second, um, a lot of that work being done, which John might talk about in a, in a minute. But one of the things that's creating the the problems when it comes to competition are the big issues that are in Australian wool industry at the moment, and that is around the shearing space. And while um, we're getting evidence that that, um, that problem is being alleviated to a certain extent, some of the work that's been done, it is still a massive problem in some areas across Australia. And the cost of shearing has uh, has really become a, a big cost in many uh, sectors where people are now seriously having a look at whether it's worthwhile continuing. Certainly in the meat sheep sector at the broader end of the market is very disappointing and in many cases I think the cost of shearing is not being covered by the, the wool that's being taken off them. So we're, we're well aware of that, well aware of the, uh, of the difficulties. So we've invested heavily in the shearing space and we will continue to invest. I think a commitment about six months ago for about $10.5 million the next three years from that time uh, for learner training and uh, novice training in sheds and shed staff training. That is uh, a long-term commitment so that we can set programs in place to actually really try and drive the numbers up. So there's a huge amount of work to be done there. And then the things around flies, chemical resistant issues around flies and around, uh, around drenches are always an ongoing problem. We have started to see quite a few issues around barber's pole worm with the wet seasons in non-traditional areas, should I say. Um, and that's been a surprise to quite a few people who have never dealt with those worms before. And many people don't know what I'm talking about, but I can tell you they're a devastating have a devastating impact. So the, the company actually put together some webinars uh, last year and obviously coming into the, as the summer gets going again, the worms getting going again, having a look at how we can actually continue on those webinars to inform people across Australia how they should be managing some of these worm problems is going to be a, a really important issue. That's AWI Chairman Jock Laurie speaking in Sydney a short time ago as wool producers gather for the annual general meeting of the research and marketing body Australian Wool Innovation. Well, as we know, Australia used to run on the sheep's back, not anymore. The Australian cotton industry has broken export records, with cotton now forecast to become Australia's third most valuable export commodity behind wheat and beef. Official figures from ABEAR show that in August this year, nearly $866 million worth of cotton was exported. It's almost double the entire amount of cotton exported in 2020. Our reporter, Georgia Vaughan, caught up with Adam Kay, the CEO of Cotton Australia. 
reflects the um, record year that we had last season. You know, the the, the 2022 uh, crop was the largest we've produced in Australia, probably about uh, 5.5, 5.6 million bales, which is about one and a quarter um, you know, million tonnes of cotton fibre. So a lot of cotton fibre. You know, to put that in perspective, that would um, put a you know jeans, a shirt, jocks and socks on half a billion people. So, um, yeah, certainly Australian cotton is, um, you know, helping clothe the world. Yeah, wow. And so it obviously has had a huge increase, as we've seen, and it's um, potentially it was the drought that had an impact on previous seasons. But what about the flooding that we've had? Has that not actually had a, a bigger impact as we think it might have? Well, the flooding is probably having a bigger impact on the, the upcoming season, but certainly we've got a, a number of farmers that have been, you know, badly impacted look there's a lot of people you know hurting out there there's real impacts on their winter crop um there are some producers that have still got some cotton to pick there's still a little bit of cotton in the field um so hopefully they can get onto that when things dry out and there's also a lot of the round modules sitting in the field that haven't got to the gin yet and hopefully they're going to be okay we can get them to the gin and uh, and get them processed but we're also sort of seeing in some of the southern parts of the state the planting window is closed. It's just getting too late for them to, to put cotton in. And um, and in the northern part of the state, well, you know, we're just really hoping things can dry out so we can get a, a crack at, uh, at getting the crop in. Yeah, okay. Um, so what about, you know, the statistic that says that 30% of 2023 crops have already been pre-sold? So... Is this going to be a positive thing for farmers or is that actually worrying? Well, look, our growers are very savvy at using the forward markets and, you know, it's it's fairly typical that they may have sold a, a proportion of their crop, you know, before planting um, to try and take advantage and there has been some good prices, you know, uh, much earlier this year. So, yeah, hopefully they, you know, they're still going to get some of their crop in and, uh, and they're not going to be get caught uh, you know, with uh, cotton they can't produce. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, that forward selling is a, a normal practice for the, uh, for the growers, especially the irrigated growers. Yeah, OK. And now can you tell me a little bit about uh, cotton is forecast to become the third most valuable commodity after wheat and beef? Just shows the value of the, um, of the industry, not only to the nation, but to our rural communities because, you know, that money gets cycled back through, you know, the towns, the, the Bogabries, the Narrabries, the Morees, you know, it, and the Wee Wars, you know, it, that money's going through those communities and, uh, and so, yeah, important for the nation but also important for, um, for the towns that, uh, you know, support our industry. Yeah, and what countries are the biggest importers of Australian cotton? Well, since the soft ban from China uh, in 2020, China was taking 70% of our cotton. You know, we've we've had to really move to expand some existing markets, find some new markets, and you know, the Australian cotton shippers and Cotton Australia have been working hard on that. We've, you know, we've found that Vietnam has become our major market. It's taking about 40% of the cotton. Uh, Indonesia has really expanded, and um, and then you know, uh, Thailand. Bangladesh, India, you know, we've got uh, a number of countries. There's about 17 countries ended up taking uh, Australian cotton, um, you know, this season. Oh, gosh. So what is China's role now then? Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they do come back in the market. We, You know, we've obviously seen the last few days maybe a, a sort of a, 
a softening of their hardline stance and some dialogue opening. And uh, you know, we I guess we're hoping for that reset with um, with a new Australian government, a reset on the relationship, and and maybe we can. Um, start you know getting cotton back to china but uh, but certainly um you know there was there was plenty of life after china and um you know we've been very lucky to uh, be able to uh, you know sell all the crop in every year yeah gosh and uh what areas in australia are the biggest producers of cotton Oh, look, you know, cotton's um, the main areas are from emerald up in central Queensland right through to, you know, into the into Victoria, northern Victoria, you know, Swan Hill and those areas, so, you know, right the way through. And, and that, that, that new area down in the Riverina, uh, that, you know, uh, during the drought, it was producing about uh, a quarter of the, of the crop. So it really varies year to year, but, you know, our established valleys, the Namoy and the and the um, and the Gwider, the border rivers are you know are big production areas, and then the Darling Downs. But um, you know they, they all contribute to a national crop, and and we're also seeing the development of northern Australia. A lot of interest around Catherine and the Douglas Daly up in the Northern Territory, and the the industry really getting going again over in the Ord. Um, you know, over at Kununurra with, um, you know, planning set to expand and especially with a, a new cotton gin being built in uh, just outside of Catherine, that's really going to, um, you know, provide some opportunities for the development of cotton in northern Australia. Yeah, and so cotton set to be the third most valuable commodity. Is this surprising? What has led to this? Oh, look, I think um, it's, it's always been, a you know, a valuable uh, crop and it's that's why you know a lot of irrigators choose to grow cotton because it gives the best return i think it's just nice to see the um the stars align with some some water and i know it's you know there's too much water at the moment but you know to have actually water in storages and some good prices on offer that's um that's enabled you know irrigated producers to take advantage of that and um, and um yeah it's it's Good for our regions, good for our nation. That's Cotton Australia CEO Adam Kay speaking with Georgia Vaughan. The industry has broken export records and now forecast to become Australia's third most valuable export commodity. Maybe time uh, to look at growing cotton in Tasmania for some farmers. Anyone growing cotton out there? 0438 936. Coming up, an app developed for fruit picking and a new recycling plant in Tasmania's northwest. John O'Hara. Do you have a favourite collective now? A smack of jellyfish is up there. A loveliness of ladybirds. I love it. I quite like a mess of iguanas. Is it a murder of crows? A murder of crows. I mean, that sounds aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having texts come in. People think the collective noun for a snail might be a slugfest <laughs> yep. or a squelch of snails. For, that's from Marie. Your afternoon with John O'Hara. No, it's an S. From half past one weekdays on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The fruit picking is underway with the berries anyway. This year, things are a little different for growers and pickers with the introduction of a new minimum hourly pay rate, which does replace the piece rate system where workers were paid based on how much they harvested. Hillwood Berries in northern Tasmania is getting on the front foot with a new app specially designed to track productivity, maximise profitability and to support workers. Madeleine Rajan spoke to General Manager Simon Dornoff about the app. Scan however many trays they have of 250. Because she's brought back two, three hundred grams. I have to say no, she's not finished picking. Go back in. 
swap it over to the 300 and scan those ones. We needed to look at things from a really truly productivity-based approach, whereas before it was anybody could come and pick and you'd have your good pickers at the top and you'd have your lesser skilled pickers at the bottom and that distribution was quite wide. Now we need to manage that distribution. So once we'd done the initial analysis on what our exposure might be with top-ups and how to manage that, we thought about building an app. It's purely a, a, an app that we've built that's in-house that we're able to monitor the workers through the day and how many trays they're picking in terms of kilos per hour and that allows us to then make decisions whether we need to bring more people into a field, whether we need to performance manage or improve some of the workforce that are struggling to get up to speed rather than um, just leave it to a decision at the end of the day. It's quite known to be a really community type activity you know lots of different people coming to pick the fruit and with friends and other people in the community and obviously not not everyone will now be able to pick to that rate of $25 an hour was one of the reasons for creating the app to sort of help upskill those who who couldn't pick to that rate but still want to partake in the in the activity of fruit picking we 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 want to pay correctly and we we make sure we pay correctly so but come with that comes an accountability to the workforce to ensure that we are remaining profitable or at least (laughs) break even at times like public holidays and you're right this app is a way for us to give feedback to those workers so they can understand where they sit in the pack and where their shortcomings might be and how we can improve them to for them to be able to earn more money to take home and for us to become more productive um, and efficient and competitive in the market. Yeah, and and how is the new technology? For a lot of people, it can be hard to to learn a new piece of technology. Yeah. Um, Look, we had a whole lot of plans two weeks ago when we started that initially it was going to be more of a self-service style, uh, almost like your supermarket checkout, where the worker would come, scan their own trays and keep moving. Um, However, that became quickly apparent that with 400 people that technology is not necessarily something they're completely used to. We found it quicker and easier to put supervisors in the scanning rather than have them, you know, scratching their head trying to figure out how to scan trays in. So we're we're evolving it as as we've launched it in the farm. We're at the very, very start of what we want to achieve. At the moment, it's driven on productivity really by speed, but we understand there's other components to picking that make a good picker. And part of that, um, we're in a block now picking a premium berry, so we want to build on quality aspects as well that we can rank pickers on their quality skill too and define other attributes than just speed to what is a makeup of a good picker attendance as well is another one you know monitoring attendance at work so we're trying to gather as much information and essentially use data to drive decisions rather than emotion and as you said before we are talking about the only variety that's allowed to be used at Wimbledon so there's a lot at stake (laughs) yeah yeah that's uh it's a new variety for us um we grow for drift schools and this is a a variety that was bred in the UK and and it's one that Wimbledon when they have the strawberries and cream it's a premium variety where that was our first sort of commercial attempt at doing it as a um sweetest batch what, what kind of flow-on benefits do you see for your business and for the workers more broadly? Well, already one of the benefits this week we launched um, just the other day was we're able to, because we're recording all of their trays live and have got all access at the end of the day, um, as soon as we've had a supervisor cast their eye over the, the day's pick and it, um, we can then, all the pickers have email addresses and the likes, so... That sends out a report at the end of the day to each picker to say the number of the trays and what blocks they get so they can check that every day to see that they are that is what we have 
and also at the start of every day when the picker clocks in for their start time we also display to the picker what the piece rate is for the day because that's part of the award they need to be shown exactly what the piece rate will be and then when they accept to start work um, that also emails them a, a record of what the piece rate is for the blocks they're doing so they're getting all the information every day now so that worker feels like they're getting all the pieces of the puzzle to to understand what their pay is going to be. And Simon, it's been pretty um, temperamental weather. We've had really hot, sunny days. Then, you know, it started raining, humidity. It's actually snowing some places today in Tasmania. How's the season looking? Yeah, it's been a headache, to say the least. Um, in our raspberries, we're in the middle of our flowering, and last week's beautiful hot weather brought on a lot of flowering. And then to come back into gloomy overcast days reduces um, bee activity that helps pollinate our raspberries and and one of those the bees do is take the nectar out of the flower so the flower can um, ripen into a berry but if you get gloomy overcast cool weather the bee activity is a lot lower so we're having to send a tractor through with a fan on the back of it blowing the nectar out of the flowers daily just to ensure that our crop is going to meet its potential and that will have some flow-on effects for pollination but not anywhere near what a bee could do. But that's just to protect that crop because, again, we have 400 workers lined up. If we lose half of it because of poor pollination, we then have to job create somewhere else for these workers that we've got a responsibility for. So I guess we're taking extreme measures this year more than ever. It is incredibly testing and you know, of the three seasons of La Nina, this has definitely been the toughest season to date. Um, with how it's dragged on. Yeah, fans on tractors and new apps for productivity. Challenging times call for innovation, don't they? Extreme measures, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. It yeah. does. Hillwood Berries GM Simon Dornoff talking to Madeleine Rajan about their new fruit picking app and how tough it's been on farm with the weather. Westbury in Tasmania's northwest has been chosen as a site to construct a unique recycling facility which will benefit aquaculture in the state and, to a lesser extent, agriculture. Meander Valley Mayor and Farmer Wayne Johnston says the plant, when completed, will recycle polystyrene. Polyfoam, which is a company that produces polystyrene uh, boxes predominantly for the fish industry for uh, for packaging of the uh, processed salmon, have announced that they're going to, or they've started construction actually of a recycling factory at Westbury. So um, they're hoping to recycle all the all the polystyrene that um, now goes into landfill and um, remanufacture it and produce brand new products, which is it's a great outcome, I think, because a lot of this stuff just goes to landfill, as I said. Polystyrene is probably not a, a huge amount of product that farmers come across. I guess um, in the vegetable industry and the fresh market industry, Tony, there's a lot of boxes that, um, you know, your cauliflowers and cabbages and broccoli and those sort of things goes into. There's no doubt about that. I guess uh, when you imagine it, you uh, get a brand new fridge or you get a brand new television and you undo the, the packaging and it's got a heap of polystyrene around it. And it's about 96% air, which is polystyrene. But um, I guess right across northern Tassie, if we can actually recycle that um, that foam and, and reuse it is good. But for farming perspective, look, there's probably probably uh, products out there or, or industries out there that use a lot more of it than what I'm aware of. Okay. And what are they going to do with it? What are they going to make it into? How are they going to reuse it? Yeah, sure. So they're going to break it all down uh, and then remanufacture it with uh, new polystyrene and re- and just recycle it, basically. So it's, um, um, yeah, it's a great outcome for for those, you know, well, for, for that product that we, we just send to landfill at the moment. So we'll be encouraging our 
neighbours um, in their council areas to to look at sending it. They're going to have skips set out in uh, Westby themselves outside the factory where they encourage people to come along and, and put it in their skips out of ours and they'll just uh, recycle and it'll, it'll go in, as I said, to, to packaging for the fish industry. And uh, what sort of job numbers are they looking at for the actual facility? Yeah, so it's going to be a seven-month build of up to 50 uh, tradespeople at the factory and then uh, once the factory's up and running, they're talking about uh, up to 20 people there full-time running the uh, factory. And obviously um, there's a lot of this uh, polystyrene uh, imported from interstate. Uh, Are they looking to, to sort of lower that quite a bit? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting, Tony. There was a, a, a tort liner sitting there yesterday, and I talked to the truck driver, and I said, "So, how much weight do you have when she's full?" And she said, "Well, when I when I've got a full load on, I've got a whole one point six ton." So that just shows you with the semi-trailer uh, full of polystyrene, there's no weight to it. So packaging from the mainland coming in, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of product coming backwards and forwards across the state, and if we can produce it here and Send it the other way, that's a win-win for all of us. So what was the journey that led to the company Polyfoam coming to Westbury? Uh, look, they reached out a couple of years ago. I guess uh, our Westbury Industrial Precinct has the benefit of gas. That's, that was the big attractor for them to come there. It's a large industrial site. The, the road access is really good. The infrastructure is really good. And they were looking for a central place in Tassie and, and they decided on Westbury. I think they've already got a facility in Hobart, um, but this is their northern facility, so, yeah, so which is a win for Westbury. Okay. Now, on farm, uh, <laughs> have you had enough rain? Uh, we have, Tony. We've, we, we, there's more rain coming Saturday and Sunday. Our, our potato ground has been ready to go sort of all but for the last two weeks and every time we oh, – I mean, we had 60-odd mils of rain. Last week, um, forecast and more this week, so lots of grass. Our lambs, we've just finished weaning our lambs and our lambs just haven't done this year because the grass is just too juicy. It just hasn't got the, the goodies in it. But And, of course, everyone's worried that they can't get their silage off at the moment because it's just too wet. So, yeah. you know, you're talking to a farmer, you realise, so I'm always going to be whinging about something. <laughs> how, how, are the, how are the cows faring? Really? Cows are going well, actually. The, our, our cows, and talking to our other dairy farmers in my area here, the cows are moving well, so, which is good. No, just we've had some damage when the floods came through with uh, crossings and uh, creeks and so forth. But at the moment, they're, they're milking well, which is really good considering where the price is. Yeah. So um, what are you looking forward to in the next six weeks? Just that one word, sunshine? Oh, sunshine, look, we, uh, yeah, look, things will steam along really well if we can get some heat, but uh, yeah, that cold snapped the other day, and I guess the best thing about it so far is we, with our ewes and our lambs, we haven't had to worry about fly strike as such yet, um, but, but that'll change, no doubt, but yeah, we need to do some silage, we need to do hay, best thing about it so far is we're not irrigating. Yeah, so, okay, <laughs> yeah. just got to watch the wet feet. Yeah, that's right, mate, so anyway, life goes on. That's me and Valley Mayor and Farmer Wayne Johnston looking for the sun and talking about the $10 million polystyrene recycling plant planned for Westbury, which will benefit aquaculture, agriculture and the construction industries in the state. Still to come on the country, our tough times for wine grape growers. Blaze aid on the ground to help farmers. We'll check the livestock markets and the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. Australian families of those killed in the MH17 attack have welcomed a Dutch court's conviction of three men of murder. 
Life sentences have been handed to two Russians and a pro-Moscow Ukrainian who've been tried in absentia for shooting down the plane with a Russian missile as it flew over eastern Ukraine in 2014. The attack killed all 298 people on board, including 38 Australians. The AFL and Tasmanian government have reached an in-principle commercial agreement for the state's bid to become the 19th team in the national competition. Speaking at an event in Hobart today, AFL CEO Gillan McLaughlin says Tasmania's bid is close to completion, but there's still a range of obstacles. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has met residents in Ugara who are facing a mammoth clean-up after flash flooding almost wiped out their town in the state's central west. And crypto exchange FTX has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the United States following its sudden collapse. The company admits that it could owe money to more than one million creditors. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Is the sun shining brightly everywhere across the state? It was shining so brightly here in Hobart that I had to put the blinds down for half of the morning so I didn't get blinded looking at my computer. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's still, a novelty, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is still nice for most of the state. A little bit of cloud has started to form, particularly about the north and the west, but fine and partly cloudy conditions prevail. Any rain of note? No, since 9am this morning, there has been no significant rainfall. And in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest rainfall was 17 millimetres at Verwood, followed by three millimetres at Mount Victoria. So that Verwood total might not actually be an accurate total. Okay. What are we looking at, though, over the weekend? Well, the fine weather will continue for today, and it is also relatively warm with maximum temperatures in the high teens and maybe early 20s. So for today, fine, apart from some possible light showers along the east coast and about higher ground in the north. But there is a wet weekend on the way. We have a rain band that's going to move over the state from the northwest from Saturday afternoon through till Sunday morning. And that'll bring a significant amount of rain to the north of the state, broadly 20 to 40 millimetres, particularly about higher ground. So this is likely to lead to renewed river rises. At this stage, we're looking at uh, minor flooding for northwestern and northern catchments with possible isolated moderate flooding. And so currently there are are still minor flood warnings for the Macquarie and Meander rivers. Those are easing over the next couple of days, but once it starts raining on Saturday, we're likely to see the rivers starting to rise again. Once that rain band moves through, we're into a generally westerly stream for the next few days. So on Sunday, there'll be showers to follow the rain band, more frequent about the west, and also some possible thunderstorms about the northwest on Saturday and then about the northeast early Sunday and again the north and west on Sunday afternoon and evening. But that's not all. We're expecting a cold snap on Monday. So we've got some very cold air to come across and we'll see snowfalls lowering to around 500 metres on Monday evening and some fresh to strong and gusty west to southwesterly winds developing. And it'll remain cold, showery and windy for Tuesday as well. Okay, now warnings. Uh, What have we got at the moment? Well, there are those uh, minor flood warnings for the Macquarie and Meander rivers, but no other warnings for today. For tomorrow, there's a strong wind warning for all coastal waters except the central north coast and Banks Strait and Franklin Sound, and also a strong wind warning for Storm Bay. And the coastal waters in Swell. Brooke, what's happening out there? 
So pretty light winds out on the coastal waters right now. Southeast to northeasterly winds at 5 to 15 knots, tending northeasterly 10 to 20 knots this evening and reaching up to 25 knots about the northwest. And then tomorrow we start with northeasterly 10 to 20 knots, but reaching 20 to 30 knots about the northwest. Then the winds will increase to 20 to 30 knots throughout during the day. For the swells today in the west and south, we've got a southwesterly of two to three metres that will gradually decay to around one metre on Saturday. And the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 3.2 metres. In the north, a westerly below one metre. And in the east, a south to southeasterly of one to one and a half metres, tending east to southeasterly around one metre tomorrow. And the wave rider buoy at Marar Island is currently reading 1.3 metres. Terrific. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with all the information for you that you need regarding the weather. We'll talk about sparkling wine in just a moment. Tune in to Nightlife with Philip Clark and Indira Naidu. Hasn't fallen over yet, so that's good. Does give you an advantage. Thought-provoking discussions to get you through the night. Good to hear from you again. What do you think? It's really been a remarkable thing. Well, how many times do we sit back and watch this happen. From an ethical point of view, is it okay to cheat? (laughs) (laughs) How do they go about it? I've got no idea. I'm not of that persuasion. Nightlife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Every night from 10pm on ABC Radio. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. Maggie says, uh, "Tony, did he say pack a pack of pickers? <laughs> Wouldn't want to work for him if he did." No, that's Simon and the fruit picking act. I, I suppose you'd say pack of pickers, wouldn't you? Anyway, I'm not going to do the Simon thing. Very good, thank you, Maggie. I like it. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. That text line number. It might seem like new vineyards are popping up in Tasmania all the time, but even with a growing industry, demand for the state's drop isn't even close to being met. That's according to longtime producer Natalie Fryer of Billybon Wines, who says it's especially the case for sparkling wine. But as she told Erin Cooper, meeting that demand will be hard for many growers as they battle the weather conditions. It's actually pretty challenging for almost all wine growers in the state at the moment. Um, friends of mine who've got vineyards on the east coast have hired helicopters because it's too wet to put tractors onto the vineyard to do really critical work that needs to be done at this time of year to protect next year's crop. So people are resorting to that really expensive but really important work. We're very nervous. The last four days was beautiful. We were hoping that that might continue. We really need a spell of really great weather to get through flowering so we can actually set a decent crop for next year because we as a state have been running short vintages for a long time. And we need to get some beautiful, beautiful grapes into our wineries in 2023. And so you're flowering at the moment. How much good weather do you need and what's the outlook like? Well, flowering hasn't quite started. Some of the very earliest vineyards it might have. But we need at least two solid weeks of good settled weather. So um, early December we will be coming extremely agitated about weather reports. What happens if you don't get that? Then we can't make wine. We can't make more wine than there is fruit on the vine. So we'll 
continue to make great wine. I mean, we've made great wine in challenging vintages year up, you know, in many, many years. So we will make great wine. It's just that if we have that really wonderful break of weather, we'll make a lot of great wine. And how is demand actually looking at the moment for Tasmanian wine, particularly sparkling wine? We literally cannot make enough. It is astounding. The demand for Tasmanian sparkling is astounding. Um, And that is locally. It's on the big island to the north and it's internationally. Internationally as well. Mm. Is that something you've seen steadily grow or is it a bit of an explosion? It's been a steady growth. I first started making sparkling wine in Tasmania in the year 2001. My first vintage was yeah, now 22 years ago. And it has been a steady, steady climb. And just recently it has, I think, reached a tipping point where Tasmania is now a quality marker that sparkling wine drinkers look for. I am only of the age where Tasmanian wine has been seen as pretty good for most of my sort of drinking life anyway. What was it like 20 years ago when you were first breaking into Tasmanian sparkling wine? Tasmanian wine's always been really good. We just haven't had a lot of it. And we have worked very hard and our industry peak body, Wine Tasmania, has done a fantastic job in... Um, really working the reputation of Tasmania and and getting our messages out to markets. And that's been, I think, a combined effort for all the growers and makers on this state. So how much of that do you think is down to the the marketing of brand Tasmania? Not brand Tasmania, the entity, but the destination marketing of Tasmania more broadly. Are they quite linked, do you think? I think it is... A strong alignment, very strong alignment. I believe that we are served very well by the fact that we are Tasmania and it is on every label and that helps. And when the word Tasmania is consistently associated with great wine, people feel confident that this is a category. You mentioned international demand Mm -hmm. before. What are some of those markets that are really seeking out Tasmanian wine? I think we're getting a lot of um, traction in the US. We've always had fairly strong traction in the UK, actually, and now increasingly in Asia, Southeast Asia, which is fantastic. So we touched on this a little bit before, but what are some of the key barriers in actually being able to meet that demand, both domestically and internationally? The number one barrier is fruit. <laughs> it's, it's access to fruit. And that's why that weather report is super important to us every single day. Please, please, Mother Nature, let us grow lots of grapes this year. May it not rain too much <laughs> yeah. in a yet another year. But I will say this, the roses in my garden have never looked better. And generally, if it's a good year for the roses, it's often a good year for grapes. We've now got you know many food and wine festivals in Tasmania, including a specialised sparkling one in Launceston. Tell me a bit about your involvement with that and how, how you feel about the fact that these are so commonplace now. It's amazing to have great wine and food festivals. Effervescence is obviously sparkling focused. My Little Wine Company is a sponsor of that, along with many other great wine producers in Tasmania. And it is about celebrating sparkling wine, but it's also about letting many other people share this special thing that we do here, which is make exceptional sparkling wines in Tasmania. I know friends of mine were at one of the events and uh, a question was asked, how many people are from interstate? And three quarters of the room put their hand up. People are flying here for this experience, sharing Tasmanian sparkling wine in Tasmania. That's winemaker Natalie Fryer talking to Erin Cooper about the strong reputation of Tasmania's sparkling wines. All of the season's not doing them any favours. Still, that's farming, isn't it?
and by the way, held every third Friday of November each year, today, National Agriculture Day. It's an initiative of the powerful lobby group, the National Farmers Federation, with the aim of celebrating and learning about Australia's farm sector. And this year's theme is celebrating innovation. Kelly Buchanan has this report. Well, there's no better spot to test the sturdiness of the bridge between the city-country divide than in a state capital on National Ag Day, when the message is loud and clear. Kay Tomarup, Scenic Rim Dairy Farmer and Queensland Farmers Federation Director. I was so inspired by people talking about the way that farmers are innovating and the way that we're embracing the fact that we need to make such change um, for climate change and and for profitability as well. So I've got a page of notes and I'm really excited to go back and think about that. Wendy Agar from Queensland Farmers Federation. Certainly love seeing ag being celebrated at National Ag Day. I think the opportunity to showcase what is being done in agriculture and certainly the function today was a brilliant opportunity to position agriculture as an innovative part, an innovative sector. And I love that the focus today was really on the profitability, purpose and productivity are all one and the same and especially the focus on that it is about people. National Ag Day was the brainchild of mining magnate and beef farmer Gina Reinhart, whose company Hancock Prospecting was joined by the National Farmers Federation and the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources as the foundation partners supporting the day. Lobby Group, the Queensland Farmers Federation, held a breakfast with a panel discussing innovation, resilience and sustainability. Its president, Joe Shepherd, says it was too good of an opportunity to miss. We see and we're aware of the incredible journey around innovation and sustainability that um, so many commodity groups in Queensland are leading. And as Terry said this morning, Australian ag is leading the world uh, in sustainability and innovation. I think farmers um, have always been resilient and I think it's, you know, the nature of where you live, often in isolation and we, you know, as farmers you have a bit of a can-do, find solutions culture. Um, But certainly in terms of disaster response, we're seeing an increasing trend, I guess, or move in Queensland agriculture to preparedness. We do have, you know, good science coming online and farmers are really turning their thoughts to how can I be as prepared as I possibly can be. Another function is raising money for rural communities. It's called Big Dry Friday and stockbroking firm Morgan's has been involved for five years, raising more than $3.4 million and hoping to raise another million today. Executive Chairman Brian Sheehan explains. The concept of the Big Dry Friday was basically at that point was to a bit of a double entendre, which was to basically say, look, don't just try and sacrifice you would have on a Friday lunch or or Friday drinks or whatever and donate to some of these rural charities. What happened was we got really strong engagement from our staff from from the bottom up from... And that was really, from a, from a business perspective, that was really a, a, an amazing thing to see. So what we saw there, there was something, there was really something there which helped, you know, create this um, engagement with people from some of their connections into the country. There has been clearly some important natural issues over that period affecting um, parts of Australia, but also there's the ongoing issues of mental health, the lack of access to sort of good care, good doctors, etc., and also ongoing education. You know, as I said, I suppose the the, the shrinkage of some of the regional towns and the ability to get good education services. So, yeah, there's there's, there's what we would call our sustainable component of charities within within Big Drive Friday sort of beneficiaries this year, and also the ones that might need particularly more help at any particular time. 
Federal Agriculture Minister Senator Murray Watt is celebrating Ag Day in his home state and was already at the breakfast. He's due at a lunch with the Rural Press Club right about now. He used the day to make an announcement for the sector. Yeah, it is a bit ironic to be celebrating Ag Day in the middle of the risen CBD, but I guess that reminds us that ag is such an important industry for the whole of our state, whether it be the country or the city. And uh, we've celebrated it by making a big announcement today around soil carbons. So the federal government is announcing $30 million in grants to support research into the measurement of soil carbons. Uh, We know there's a huge amount of interest in the farming community in better looking after our soils because of the nutrients they provide. And let's face that's the underpinning of our agriculture industry, certainly when it comes to crops. And, and even those uh, livestock need something to eat, which comes out of the soil. So that, re- that research that we're funding uh, will really help a lot of technology providers and universities better work out how we can measure uh, the quality of soil health. And then what that can do is help farmers make better choices about how they cultivate their land, how they fertilise their land, how they look after their land to preserve that really important soil carbon. That's the Federal Ag Minister, Senator Murray Watt, ending that report from Cali Buchanan, Ali Felton-Taylor. On National Agriculture Day, the theme this year, innovation, the middle name for every Tasmanian farmer. Um, And farm value in Tasmania now worth $3.52 billion dollars. The salmon industry is the highest value food product, valued at $1.01 billion. Dairy on the ground, the highest value agriculture category at $490 million. Meat rose 8%. Berry production rose 45% and vegetables increased 13% to $337 million. So some really positive figures there coming out of the Tasmanian agriculture industry on National Agriculture Day worth $3.52 billion. Well done, farmers doing your job. Are you a farmer who could do with a bit of help on the farm after the floods? You may want to keep listening. Blaze Aid is a volunteer-based organisation that helps rural Australians after natural disasters. They're about to get to work in Tasmania. Mary Howarth has been on the road for about 10 years working for Blaze Aid. It happened to be in Tasmania on a holiday when the recent floods hit. Meg Powell has the story. I just decided one day I'd had enough of work. I had been out doing uh, Blaze Aid since 2011 And then I just thought, it's time to get a new life. So I took off and then I started coordinating camps rather than working in the paddock. So I've done 18 camps so far. Gosh. And uh, you're down in Tasmania at the moment. Was that for Blaze Aid that you came down? No, actually, Meg, I came down for a holiday. Then when I heard Kevin mention that they, uh, some of the farmers were needing a bit of a hand, I decided to get in contact with Melissa, who's now running as his daughter. And uh, so now I'm, I'm sort of trying to get some volunteers together so we can go out and help some of these farmers that have been impacted by these floods. So what have, what have you done so far and what have you been hearing from farmers? Well, it's been a little bit hard, Meg. I think because Blaze Aid hasn't been down here very much. It's mainly been on the mainland. A lot of people don't know about it. Some people do. So it's sort of not out there. Most of the time we all get in contact with the, the shires, with the council. Some of them do have a disaster management section within their council and the farmers can register them with them if they need help, which then in return, Blaze Aid does get in contact with them. We've passed on the name and numbers of these property owners and then we go from there.
we, we then set a camp up and we get volunteers in and go out and try and help these farmers get back on their feet. First thing we start on mainly are the boundary fences, which are going onto main roads like highways or something like that. We'll work on that if they do have stock to retain. And then we start working our way around the farm. So at the moment, you've got your eyes on the Tasmanian farmers who have been affected by these floods. What kind of stories have you been hearing, Mary? Uh, well, it's been it's very hard, Meg, mainly because a lot of them have still got their everyday chores to get done, uh, feeding or cropping, whatever they're doing. But then when they've got to fix up these fences too, it makes it very difficult when you're trying to do it on your own. So that's where it's been good with Blaze. We've been able to get volunteers. We get out there as a team and then we can pull up the old fences if they've been knocked down, get the debris off it, restrain up or otherwise if there's sections they've got to cut out. We will then roll up any that, that is damaged that can't be used and help them refence that section as well. But they've they're struggling, the ones that have been in contact. But if there are farmers out there listening to this that do wish to to register for some assistance, if they get in contact and go to blazeaid.com, there'll be a telephone number there where they can give Melissa a call to be able to register for assistance down here. And that's all entirely free, as I understand it? It's, yes, it is. It is. Sometimes we do ask for lunch. Or morning tea. <laughs> a sausage or two. <laughs> but if they can't provide it, it doesn't really matter. At least we're giving them a hand to get it back on their feet. And there's so many farmers at the moment that need it. Yes, definitely. They do a great job. Blaze Aids, Mary Howarth, talking to Meg Powell about some fence building they've got coming up. And it's starting near Scottsdale in the state's northeast. And uh, Mary having a holiday in Tasmania when the floods came. If you would like to register to receive some help or to volunteer yourself, yeah, you might be able to help somebody else. Head to blazeaid.com.au, blazeaid.com.au. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, it is that time on a Friday afternoon to check out the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well. Another good week in livestock market. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had somebody on the uh, ram sale, the multi-breed ram sale yesterday. Didn't do too bad, but it was a bit softer of a market. But uh, anyway, things are bubbling along. Yeah, still a few ram sales to go. Um, so look out if you're uh, still looking for rams. Now let's uh, look at cattle first up. Uh, the cattle market, um, what's your summation of this week? Generally speaking, across eastern Australia, the market's been a bit softer. Um, young cattle sort of uh, anywhere from sort of five to eight cents cheaper in a lot of markets. Bullocks a little bit cheaper also. A lot of bullocks now making sort of 400 to 450 cents a kilo, an odd good bullock up to 500 cents. Cow market was considerably cheaper right across just about all markets I looked at uh, from up north right down to, to Pakenham. Anywhere from sort of 10 to 25 cents cheaper for your better cows. It still meant that they're making pretty good money, but there's a, a, most of the average is now, um, you know, a sort of anywhere from, as I said, 15 to 20 cents cheaper than they were, say, two or three weeks ago. It's just been sort of coming back a little bit for a few weeks, but this week was a little bit more than that. Yeah, okay. Um, any any more cattle sales coming up, the store cattle? Yeah, we've got uh, store cattle sale of Piranha 
uh, next Thursday. Looks like there'll be about fourteen to fifteen hundred cattle, so it'll be some. And and by the look of the ads, there's some reasonable lines of cattle there. And I would think that now, although it's been wet and cold, I would think a lot of these cattle are starting to, you know, hit their straps a bit. So there'll be some pretty good, pretty good buying opportunities there. I should imagine that there are plenty of people around the state that've got plenty of feed that uh, will be looking for something to eat. Yeah, certainly a lot to eat, isn't there? Oh, <laughs> uh, gee. Anyway, if you couldn't grow grass at the moment, mm, yeah, forget it. Um, okay, lamb and sheep, let's head across there. Okay, uh, interesting, interesting market, uh, land market this week. It's been very wet again through uh, Victoria and, well, early during the weekend and earlier in the week through Victoria and New South Wales. It meant that the numbers came back abruptly, uh, like Wagga came back right back to, well, you know, about 30,000 lambs after the big numbers of last week. It meant that the the market rebounded from the, the from the markets of last week. Uh, Bendigo and Ballarat were fully firm, if not a little bit dearer. And then when we got to Wagga, uh, well, Hamilton, and then Wagga on Thursday, yesterday, uh, that was sort of anywhere from 20 to $30 better, and they're very heavy lambs up to $40 better. So that recovered the losses of last week. It just goes to show, Tony, that there is a, a fickle line between supply and demand at the moment, and it's not just going into the sale yards, but a lot of these areas are that wet that they can't get trucks in to get the lambs out to go to the abattoirs. So as we've said before, there'll be a there'll be a bit of a payback for this at some stage uh, because there will be a lot of lambs about, but just at the moment that's what's happening. The other interesting thing out of those yards is that um, there are still a lot of very plain quality lambs because of the weather. Um, so a lot of these are going back to the paddock and not being killed. So that's another interesting side. The other one is that at Hamilton on Wednesday, we would have expected the numbers to jump dramatically. But because it's been so wet, they didn't. And so one would imagine that in these next two or three weeks, we'll see Hamilton really ramp up into that uh, two-day sale situation they have when it comes to December. Over in the mutton yard, some markets were equal and others were cheaper than last week. Depended a little bit where you went. Um, Wagga was definitely cheaper yesterday uh, and yet a couple of the Victorian markets during the week showed just a little bit of extra promise. Um, the big boys from New South Wales came down and, and uh, when they're down in Victoria, they make sure the market stays pretty good. Yeah. And you were saying this week it was a pretty soft mutton market in uh, in Tassie. Yeah, very. It probably... Probably is the lowest mutton market we've seen for a fair while, but it's just mirroring. You know, we I reckon we've been sort of since a kilo, we've been probably above the mainland for a while, and it's just really mirroring what's happening over there because that's where the vast majority, apart from the mutton that goes to TQM, that the rest of the sheep all go to Victoria, or yeah, Victoria. Um, so you know, it just depends on what that price is over there, that's what they'll pay. So yep. um, not sure where that'll go um, that, because there'll be a fair heap of sheep coming to the market, you would think, in the next couple of months. So it yep. uh, might be interesting. Okay, Richard, you have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us next Wednesday to check out the Power Renner Markets. That is our Country Hour for the week. Have a productive and safe weekend, whatever you might be doing, and we will catch you after midday Monday.